Hello and welcome to episode 259 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Schoen. Today on the podcast, we get in the wrestling ring and harness the power of brotherhood in our review of Sean Durkin's biopic, The Iron Claw. But first, Scott, Happy New Year. How are you? Happy New Year to you as well. I'm doing doing good. End of 2023 in style, starting 2024 off by seeing The Iron Claw. You know, like there's going to be the inevitable conversation we're going to have about was 2023 a good year in movies. The Iron Claw is obviously a part of that, but I like to think that I'm putting a good foot forward in 2024, starting off with this movie. Maybe that uh, is a little bit uh, foreshadowing of what we're about to talk about in my review. But I I feel like I took the second half of December off really piling in a bunch of movies and January. Inevitably, I think you, you sort of boomerang back and then you go finish the laundry list of films that you've missed or you've wanted to make sure you got before we do our top 10 list in a, in a few weeks. And so I, I feel re-energized today to get back in the game, watch a few more movies, maybe I, not, not 2023 films, but next weekend as a part of the Edward Yang retrospective at the at film at Lincoln center, I am seeing a brighter summer day on Saturday and yee on Sunday. So uh, <laughs> solid seven, I'm seven going, hours worth of film. Yeah, I'm going to bring there, some yeah. chocolate and make myself feel real good after. Hopefully, I don't know. It's going to be it's, Yeah, I mean, that's going to be something else. But yeah, two yeah. unbelievable movies, though. You will you will not be disappointed. And I'm jealous of that experience that you're getting to have. But yeah, sure. Yeah. But uh, look, ho- hoping to to start off on the right foot in 2024. We have this film to, of course, talk about today and we'll share our thoughts on that. But Dunes in a couple months. Furiosa's this summer. Uh, look, the the film industry might be dying quickly this year because of the strikes after that, but those two movies I can hold on to. Yeah, I do think it is worth when we have our top 10 episode, we'll probably talk a little bit about just the year in movies because not just, you know, the quality of the movies, whether it was a good year in that regard, but there were a lot of big things it feels like that happened that, you know, are shifting the industry, so to speak, whether it's the strikes, as you mentioned, whether it's perhaps, you know, Marvel and superhero films in general, seeming to to be on a downward trajectory as we leave 2023. Um, And, you know, just everything related to that. Um, I I think it's worth discussing. And even, even, even movies like the iron claw and obviously, you know, on a bigger level, Barbie and Oppenheimer, you know, Performing very well at the box office, right? We're getting back to... Oh, the, the Iron Claw is not performing well at the box office. But... Right, yes, but I mean movies like the Iron Claw, sorry. You know, original films or, you know, stuff like that. That, you know, is having more success at the box office than we have seen post-COVID. Um, and what does that mean going forward? But that conversation will be had um, at a later time. Um, but yes, Happy New Year to you as well. I'm uh, looking forward to all of that. 2024 has to hold. I am still, I still do have a few more um, 2023 movies to watch as well. I'm trying to figure out when I'm going to get to see Ferrari, um, which, you know, is in theaters right now. We have the color purple still out there. Um, a few other sort of Oscar contenders, American fiction is coming up monster, the Corriata film I'm going to see here in a couple of weeks. So um, I'm, I'm by, you know, a lot of, a lot of critics and stuff have revealed their lists at this point, but I am by, not, by no means feeling like a completist on my list at this point. So mm-hmm. um, we're getting there. And by the end of the month, we'll have that, uh, that best of 20, 
23 episode coming for you and perhaps one of the films that will be featured on that episode is our movie today the iron claw the third feature from Martha Marcy Mae Marlene and the Nest director, Sean Durkin. The Iron Claw is the incredible and heartbreaking true story of the Von Erich family of professional wrestlers. Beginning in 1979, the film picks up with Kevin Von Erich, played by Zac Efron, having just become Texas NWA heavyweight champion. Kevin's belt, of course, comes as a great delight to his father, the family patriarch, Fritz Von Erich, played by Holt McElhaney who has masterminded his son's entry into the world of pro wrestling that he has focused his life around. Next in the ring is son David, played by Harris Dickinson, who teams up with Kevin to create a formidable, formidable tag team. Kevin, the stronger physical athlete, while David is more skilled on the mic. After Fritz's oldest son, Carrie, played by Jeremy Allen White, has his Olympic hopes cut short by the 1980 U.S. boycott, he too joins his brothers in the ring and eventually ends up battling world champion Ric Flair himself. Left behind, however, is Fritz's youngest son, Mike, played by Stanley Simons, who doesn't share his brother's interest in wrestling and instead desires a musical career, much to the disapproval of Fritz. Amidst the brother's success and ambition, however, looms the Von Erich Curse, a tragic specter which Kevin believes cost the life of his older brother, Jack Jr., as a child, and which Kevin fears is still haunting the family as other misfortunes start to befall the Von Erichs, and Fritz's stranglehold over his sons starts to reach a breaking point. Scott does the Iron Claw pack a heavyweight emotional punch that places it alongside the other great biopics of 2023, or does this story of family and sports strike too many familiar blows to leave a lasting mark? Yeah, you know, I'm coming out of this film pretty fresh. Something that I talked on our May December episode is something that I didn't really don't really enjoy doing as much these days. I like having time to process things. So I'm still very much in the processing phase of, of this film, but I was uh, I, I thought it was more the former than the latter. I think there are some elements maybe that uh, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the conversation we had about Maestro and how biopics have these sort of cliches or, or tropes, but sort of like Maestro, I think this film rises above those and pushes through them. And I think something that we talked about off air, I think maybe right after recording that that last episode on Maestro and Wonka, you talked about how this film, it struck you as just having the, the there's this sort of like Bradley Cooper with Leonard Bernstein, Sean Durkin really feels like he's just so passionate and focused and sort of absorbed by the subject material the subject matter in this case the von eric family maybe even kevin von eric specifically and the trajectory of his life and i think you can really feel that throughout the whole film even from the beginning right i think the first scene shot in black and white showing fritz when he was still wrestling in his prime i think you sort of i i sort of immediately felt the the pull almost like a tractor beam into this film and I found the whole film very uh, absorbing. I found it very just rich with detail, um, great performances, I think, up and down the cast list here. It's really hard to know who to even start and who to really talk about first because maybe the obvious candidate would be a Zac Efron, but I think there's such strong performances further down the cast list as well with Holt McCallany, with Harris Dickinson, with Jeremy Allen White, Mara Tierney, you know, like the whole, you know, ensemble cast is is really outstanding. 
in this on at least on first impression as I react to it. And I think it's pretty wowing what Durkin is able to accomplish. It, when when I was thinking about like, oh, Sean Durkin, have I seen his movies kind of kind of thing? And, and I wasn't sure. And you know, we had this conversation where I was like, did I see The Nest? Did I watch The Nest in 2020, his last movie? And I did. And I don't remember you anything did. about it at all. Uh, but this film, I, I have a feeling I'm going to be thinking about this film for a while. I, you know, is, is it a totally original thematic story? No, I'm sure we could go down a laundry list of movies just this year whose core theme is the notion of toxic masculinity and how it ruins families, how it ruins relationships, because ultimately that is one of the key themes of this movie and about how, you know, Fritz von Erich, they're this uh, sort of the family patriarch lets down his family by not properly taking care of them, by not giving them the emotional outlets they needed, by not giving them the love that they needed um, and was self-obsessed and trying to live vicariously through his children who had opportunities that either he had coveted or he had squandered during his career. But it's, I mean, it's a really affecting film. I think there's a, a lot to talk about in the movie. And I wasn't sure that it was really going to get to me halfway through the film. I also knew a little bit about the story going in mainly. And I guess this is a light spoiler. If you're not familiar with the Von Erich family, I knew that, a lot of the a lot of the children died and so i knew that that was coming at some point but by the end the sort of connection that this the story was was sort of trying to build and to try to build this around less the the shock and the tragedy that goes in this family but more the journey that kevin goes on over the course of the film that ultimate conclusion of that journey where the film stops i did find really affecting and absolutely did get to me at the end of the film. So I was, yeah, I was really impressed by this. You know, I haven't seen Martha, Marcy, May Marlene, which was Sean Durkin's first film, but this was, I found this to be very, a very impressive feature from Durkin. And it makes me interested to go back and check out Martha, Marcy, May Marlene. But this is certainly a step up from the first of his films that I had seen in the nest. And it has me very interested in what he's interested in doing next. Cause I think the craft here, the, I for exactly how to shoot this film it was really um it really worked i was sort of mentioning that first scene earlier and i found that scene sort of reminiscent it reminded me of some of my experiences watching other first scenes from major directors so you know, i think i mentioned this on when we talked about killers of the flower moon but even from the first scene of that film like you really feel the talent and the craft that's going into what's in front of you and I got a similar vibe when I was watching this film and it was, yeah, it really, it really did blow me away by the end of it. I was a, I was a huge fan. Yeah. I have seen both of his other movies and uh, I agree. I think this is his strongest work yet. I mean, he, he really, I think um, thrives in these very intense experiences. I think that the nest was a really intense movie about this oh, marriage for sure. between yeah. Jude Law and Carrie Coon. And then, you know, the Mar Martha Marcy May Marlene is set in a cult. Um, so you can, you know, imagine sort of the tension that he's able to wring out of that um, scenario. But here I think it's emotionally intense, right? I think that's sort of what he is honing in on. What makes the movie work is that he really is locked into uh, the emotional beats here of what you say, yes, is a story that does hit, hit familiar beats at times, 
Although, like, there is a the tragedy that befalls this family reaches a point that is just like, you know, almost un, unfathomable, right? That all of this sort of thing could have happened to this family. And in fact, this movie doesn't even go all the way, right? Because uh, the reality is that there's another son who also had a tragic story and is not even portrayed at all in this movie. And Sean Durkin himself said he did that because he just didn't think that audiences could take any, any more than what, you know, is already present in the story that he tells here, which, you know, uh, some people may have is take issue with the, that fact, but I, I mean, I kind of understand where he's coming from. Like um, the movie really does, I think um, just punch you in the gut emotionally over and over and over again. And I think the catharsis that he's looking for at the end of the movie would probably be dulled a little bit if we had yet another story in the movie of a brother, you know, dying under uh, tragic circumstances. The same, the same way that Carrie did. Chris, yeah. who's this youngest Committing son suicide. that you're talking yeah. about, who's even five years younger than Mike, mm-hmm. who's already considerably younger than the rest of them. Um, yeah, he shoots himself in the head. He commits suicide in a very similar manner to Carrie does at the end of the film. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, that, that may make it sound like a punishing experience. Um, but I was just gripped throughout this film. Um, and you know, I I do think there is that catharsis at the end, which we can talk about, but, um, yeah, I, I just found, even as somebody who doesn't have any interest in professional wrestling or anything like that, um, I was, this is one of my, you know, favorite movies that I've seen this year. Like I was really all the way in. And as you say, you know, there are formulaic moments and people may look at, you know, what I've said about biopics in the past or something and, you know, be able to pick apart the fact that I'm praising this movie and say, well, hey, this movie does all these things that you said you didn't like in this other movie, right? Well, nobody's actually going to do that because nobody cares that much about my opinions. But in theory, you may be able to do that if you wanted to. Um, And it's just one of those movies where I have to just kind of like put my hands up and say, look, I, I get it. Like, yes, I understand there are cliche moments in this movie. There's a montage that is set to Tom Sawyer by Rush, you know, the classic 80s rock song that, you know, just feels like it's in every. Oh, hey, we're in the 80s. We're in the 80s. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) And, you know, nine times out of 10, I would just sit there and roll my eyes. Uh, But when it comes on in this movie, I was like, let's go. And, you know, I don't know if I can fully explain why that is other than that. Yeah, the, the care, the attention to detail and. The focus on really, you know, putting you in the shoes of this family. We've talked about it before, biopics that just want to be the highlights, right? The go from the Wikipedia entry to Wikipedia entry, you know, and not really um, get beneath the surface. I think this movie really takes its time in the first half, right, to get us to know the family. And I really appreciated that the early scenes in the movie Um, where we are just kind of seeing the brothers bonding, right? There's a scene where they sneak out of the house uh, and they go and they help Mike go to play a uh, concert at this, what seems to be a college party of some sort, a college house party. And they're all just bonding. It's a great scene, right? Like you really um, feel really connected to all the characters. I saw somebody, you know, I saw there's a popular review on Letterboxd of this movie that says like, this is Little Women, for boys, which, uh, you know, is maybe a bit of a stretch, but 
Um, I think some of those scenes like that, and you know, I think Zach Efron's character, I think Kevin Von Erich, you know, there's a scene where Lily James's character, his wife asks him, you know, what do you want basically out of life? And he's like, I just want to, you know, wrestle. I want to be with my brothers. Right. And it does kind of mirror that idea of like sort of wanting your childhood and wanting the bond that you have with your siblings as young people to go on forever. Right. Which is also part of little women. And I think you really get that connection between all of them. And I think that's important because then, you know, you're going to hit the tragic beats after that. Um, and uh, so I think the movie does a really good job of setting all that up before we get into the part of the movie, which, you know, you expect, which maybe you're a little bit more used to. Um, so, yeah, I think the performances, like you said, are excellent. Um, I think the craft is there. I was hooked all the way to the end of this movie. I, you know, it was it was the probably the most emotional that a movie has got me this year when it was all said and done. Um, and like I said, one of my favorites of the year, I didn't really expect it at all. Um, but you know, about 15 to 20 minutes into the movie, as you said, I was like, okay, this is, this is a really good movie. Like you can just kind of tell, you know, it just kind of has that vibrancy. It has that life about it from, from the beginning. Yeah, it really, I feel like it almost even comes through most in the cinematography when you're watching the film how Durkin is approaching engrossing you in in the material and this in the subject matter and how close and and almost fit like very physical very very visceral yeah. not just the wrestling but even the family moments like even that scene that you're talking about at the local college nearby where they're playing the concert there's the way that he shoots that scene not only are you are you getting to live with these characters a little bit more like you really feel a part of the scene you're not mm -hmm. just observing the scene it feels you feel like you're in the scene there too and I, and I think that that is just one example of how Durkin is is really able to effectively insert the audience you know me as a viewer into the film and, and get me to buy in even more to what's going on because I sort of you know I, I'm similar like I, I'm not someone who really is interested in or has ever really been interested in professional wrestling. I mean, maybe over the, over the years I've, I've appreciated it as a form of entertainment and sport more than I have, um, you know, previously, but still not yet really have ever really been interested in it yet. Nevertheless, like you say, there's this really, it is a really compelling story. And the fact that Durkin is able to accomplish that both in the sports side of things, but also the family drama, of it all it, yeah it's impressive yeah it's cliche to say but it's not just a sports film right it's not just a movie about wrestling it's about a lot more than that and sure. um it's successful it's a film about a wrestling family you know yes that, yeah. maybe that's very on the nose to say but that, that of course wrestling is going to be a part of that but is that really what the film's about yeah and i've talked about this before but you know on a personal level i'm very close to my brother so movies that are about brothers like you know do hit different for me sure. and you know again like that like the scene the college scene we keep coming back to it but like a movie doesn't have to do a whole lot you know in, in the realm of you know establishing a relationship between brothers mm -hmm. for me to just be like yeah i get it you know because you know i i do get it I, I'm, I'm close to my brother too so um i thought the movie hit even deeper with me maybe for 
for that reason. But, uh, you know, I think it's resonating with with everyone, it seems. Yeah, I, I think it's great. so impressive how the film is able to very quickly establish that, especially with Kevin and uh, because it spends the most time with Kevin. But he's this he's this person. And I understand that, you know, this film is about him, consulted him and you can insert all you want about like, you know, is this film maybe giving him a kind a kind read and a kind narrative, obviously very sad and very moving. But is it being uh, fair to him in, in a truly unbiased way or is it is it benefiting him a little bit? But I found it so fascinating to be able to affect how effectively they were able to show Kevin as this like ultimately very sensitive boy, right? He's in his 20s, but he's a boy. Um, you talk about that scene where he's talking with Pam, his at the time, you know, girlfriend, eventual wife, and he, she's asking him what he wants. And he's just talking about he wants to be with his family like like that is what, you know, you, you would expect that kind of answer from someone who is much younger then you know the 25 whatever he was maybe he was more than that at the time you know 23 to 25 year old that he was at the time and that sort of innocence like he never really loses that innocence entirely of course it gets tarnished and it gets beaten around by his dad and, and the tragedies that happen to him but the fact that he's that is like there at his core like that this guy is just crying out for like a positive male role model. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that kind of person, like he just needs to be shown that it's okay to, to feel what he feels and be what he yeah. wants to be. And instead, you know, his, his brother David dies and his father is coming out on the porch and telling all of them that you can't, you can't show any grief or sadness can't cry, about yeah. this. You can't cry. Um, and like, I don't know if it's literally the same night of the funeral, but he's been out there on the porch later telling them that we're, we're going to use your brother's death to be even greater. And who wants to take his title shot in wrestling? And I understand that maybe in real life, those things don't literally happen in the same night. Well, but maybe they do. I don't know what I, what I was going to say is, I mean, I, I don't know about that specific incident, but sure. I believe it's with the the brother who's not portrayed in the movie. Chris, I believe there's a, a real story that, Fritz von Eric was selling tickets or something to his funeral or to some sort of memorial service for him, you know, basically turning it into a entertainment spectacle. Right. Which, you know, that just, that tells you that maybe the movie isn't honestly that far off in how greedy and yeah. uh, corrupt and yeah. thoughtless it depicts this character. Yeah. Fritz is, I mean, certainly a, a rough character, but, but the Kevin point, like, the, like Zac Efron and the and sort of the the narrative of this film just does such a, they do such a they, they both sort of combine to do such a really great job showing Kevin as this person and and establishing even David right like David who um you know I think Harris Dickinson is is really great in this film portraying yeah. David and these these brothers somehow in spite of you know their emotionally distant parents are able to be such an emotional rock for each other and they just didn't know how to to spread beyond that and I, I find that to be such an interesting element of the film and it's only by you know some miracle maybe that is something worth talking about later on in the episode that kevin is able to not end up in the same place that several of his brothers ended up in emotionally yeah, uh, and you're, you're talking about the performances there, so I think we can, you know, go there perhaps. 
And one area, this movie isn't necessarily at the forefront of the awards conversation right now, but one area where I think it is gaining traction is perhaps in Zac Efron's lead performance. Um, A lot of people praising what he did here. This could be, you know, again, I think this is one of those where you could look at uh, the physical transformation and just say, hey, it's a hair and makeup job, right? It's the classic, you know, biopic. This guy just put on a wig and he, you know, bulked up i mean seriously bulked up for this movie like he uh, is jacked um and you know that's all there is to the performance Uh, i imagine i I think we both would disagree with that but do you have anything more to add about zach efron's performance and um you know do you think it's a a standout here i do i mean i this is this is the conundrum that i that i was having and that i was sort of starting to express at, at the start of my thoughts is that is this a standout performance I don't know. They're all so good. I think the performances are all yeah. so good that it's hard to really call this a, a huge standout. But I think because he's able to deliver that caliber in what is, you know, uh, without a doubt, the lead role of the film. He's in the he certainly has the most screen time. He's the emotional center of the film. Ultimately, it's chart. The film is charting his journey over the course of you know decades, you know, 20 plus years of time. So in, in that sense, I think that he is the standout performance, I just think because of that. But yeah, I mean, the physical transformation is scary. Like, I, I didn't see. Any I don't know this, how he did it. Yeah, I didn't see any of the movies that he was in last year to know if that transform, like how that transformation trended, because he was in films like Firestarter and uh, The Greatest Beer Run Ever last year. Oh, yeah. But like before that, like the most recent thing he'd done of any significance was the Ted Bundy film, the extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile Netflix film back in 2019. But I mean, this transformation is a far cry from how he looked in that, how he looked in The Greatest Showman, Um, even Baywatch, which is like more of like a a film where, you know, you're getting cut or whatever. Right. That's like he's not just cut in this film. He is bulked like he is huge in this movie. And it's kind of scary, like. I always wonder when actors do those kinds of things, like, is that healthy what you're doing? Like that's that, that is like really scary stuff mm-hmm. that, that they're doing. And, but he, he bears that, like he owns that physicality extremely well. And you know, the scene where he's fighting is at Harley race where he mm-hmm. gets dropped on the cement floor afterwards. Like that mm-hmm. is, a, that is a crazy scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that his performance, that physicality that he brings to it makes you feel for him in these in these sort of key moments where he's not being passed over yet in this specific moment that I'm talking about. But you can sort of see that that truism, that dogma that his dad has of like, you know, Ke- he says at the beginning of the film, Kevin's my favorite right now. Carrie's my second favorite, but I'm always open. And it's a it's basically it's a meritocracy like anyone can win mm. me over to be my favorite or my least favorite over the you know over the course of of these kids lives and you can sort of see these moments where he's being physically just broken and there's no there's no empathy or sympathy for that and his dad's just all business and you and efron's performance there i think of that scene specifically because you can just sort of see emotionally how it's affecting him and the fact that he sort of even in that moment maybe he wouldn't have been able to tell you right then but he in that moment you can see like his fortune within the family shifting uh, for the first time and, and, you know, eventually sort of permanently shifting to second, third, 
preferred in the in in the family hierarchy and the kid hierarchy. Um, and I think Efron bears that just as well, if not better than than anyone else. And he sort of meets the requirements. You know, if there's one thing that maybe I would have liked more of, not from necessarily his performance, but the characterization of his character is that when he's really struggling after, I think it's probably most happening after, is it Mike dies after Mike commits suicide and he like won't get out of bed and, and mm-hmm. Lily yeah. James, Pam, his wife is, you know, just he's completely mentally, physically absent from his marriage, from his family. I, I would have loved maybe a little bit more there because I think that he was really doing something there and taking his performance sort of deeper and deeper and further and further in the film. I just for time. I mean, this film's, you know, it's not a short film already. It's a two hour, 15 minute movie or whatever it is. Um, I almost wish the film had spent a little bit more time in that sort of malaise rather than having him snap out of it via this fight with Ric Flair, where he almost, you know, where he gets disqualified, where he does all these things. And that, and that, and that sort of interaction with the afterwards, that is what sort of breaks him out of this malaise and has him return to his family. I maybe would have liked a little bit more of that part of his journey. That's not a, a Zac Efron note, necessarily more of a character note, but you know, in spite of that, I still, Efron's performance still gets me all the way there over the course of the film. And, and it has to be complimented. It's a really strong performance. And if he ends up in the best actor race, it's deserved. I mean, it's a tough race. It's a tough race every year, I guess. But it's a it's a tough race this year for sure. Yeah, and I do actually like that scene though, where he's laid there because it like it it I think it perfectly portrays his predicament at that moment, which is like he just feels like there is nothing that he can do or that he knows how to do, right? Because yeah, what he knows how to do is wrestling, right? And that's the thing that sure. is killing his family. But he also can't, you know, show his emotion, show how it's actually affecting him, any of that, uh, because, um, you know, he's he's been coached in this manner by his father. And so all that sort of yeah. leaves him in is this immobile position, almost like this fetal position on on the bed. And that's, you know, that's I think the Lily James character is is good in that regard because you know again this is one of those characters where in a biopic you could say oh it's just like stereotypical throwaway love interest you know character it it still kind of is but at at times it is but i think that she serves a very important role of like she she is that empathetic figure right that he doesn't have really anywhere else in his life necessarily and you just don't see any of that in the movie is the problem well, I think she, in that scene that we're talking about there, I think she encourages him to sort of be honest about his feelings and to snap out of it, so to speak, um, and just to, you know, be who he is. Um, and I just think in general, like the kindness and um, persistence, I guess, she shows with him throughout the movie um, is something that. He, like I said, he, he doesn't really have that anywhere in his life. Maybe he has it from his brothers, but again, that the they start leaving his life. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's not it's not a perfect character. Certainly, it's not a completely well rounded three dimensional character, probably. But anyway, Zac Efron, yes, he's great in the movie. He is like sort of this emotionally stunted person, as we're saying, because um, 
he can just feel things slipping away from him, but he doesn't know what to do. And that, and that's, you know, his family, that's his brother slipping away from him. It's also himself though, right? Because his wrestling career, as we've said, he, he starts the movie and he's on a, a big high, right? He's just won this Texas champion and yep. everything it seems like that happens to him from that point on in the arena of wrestling is, is a, is a bad thing, right? Like Harley race, he gets beat up really bad and David kind of steals the spotlight from him, you know, mm -hmm. by taking the mic sort of exposing that Kevin himself is not that great on the mic. Right. And that's, you know, that's a very important part of wrestling. Yeah. And then David sort of usurps his throne and is actually the one who ends up, you know, winning the, the title first and then, or no, I'm sorry. Carrie is the one who ends up winning the title, but, um, that you know that the, happens, the NWA happens. title, yeah, 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 yeah. Carrie yeah. comes back, right, and then Carrie usurps, and and it's that that you know crazy kind of scene where they're going to fight Ric Flair and yeah. David can't do it, and so it's Kevin or Carrie, and um, the dad is like, Fritz is like, okay, we're just gonna flip a coin, right, and. It's like you know what's going to happen, right? You know it's going to be Carrie, Did, uh, because uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting because then it, obviously it cuts away and it, you never even see it. And there's mm -hmm. a coin later in the film when, um, I forget what scene it was, but there's like a like a I think it's in the afterlife scene that that's like sitting on the bench oh. as Carrie as Carrie gets up that's showing tails, and I was like a little confused by that because I think it was heads Carrie tails. Tales, yeah. So, um, so maybe, maybe very subtly implying that Kevin gave the shot but, to his his brother, even though he. Well, I was going to say that the dad, that the dad lied. The dad yeah. lied. Oh, yeah, yeah sure, yeah. That's I mean, why. That that's sort of how I interpreted it. Or it was like you know, a two headed coin or whatever, right? Where like it was pre, the outcome was predetermined or, or whatnot. But anyway, that's a very subtle detail. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. I didn't. Pick Maybe up I'm overreading it. Anyway, the point is, Carrie, you know, usurps it from him. Like that was going to be Kevin's shot, yep. right? Like yep. multiple times, he has his shot taken away from him, and it's just like he kind of just has to grin and bear it, right? Because it's his brothers. He loves his brothers. Like he is supportive of, of them, um, and also, yeah, again, because he's been told that he can't really feel anything about any of this right like it's all just it's all for the good of the family in the end but um yeah uh, so i think i think you know this is the strongest performance i've seen from zach efron in his career by a long shot um sure. and uh, i think he's really really good other people in the cast scott we've brought up a lot of them already but yeah um of course the other brothers stanley simons J um jeremy allen white and harris dickinson um we have Holt McElhaney, who plays Fritz, who plays the father. We have Maura Tierney, who's their mother. We have uh, Lily James, who, as mentioned, is Pam, the wife of Kevin Von Erich. Um, a few other random, you know, people that that show up throughout the movie. Who who stood out to you? Yeah, for me, I, I I'm sort of slowly, just totally fascinated by Harris Dickinson. Yeah. I found him to be, I mean, just really bad really bad in uh, where the crawdads sing i just like i could not believe i generally I forgot about him in that yeah i mean he's probably the worst performance in that movie uh, by far and yeah. a film that's like not sprinkled with outstanding roles to begin with and 
then he came back and you know whatever your feelings on triangle of sadness are as a film i thought he was really great as the male lead of that film and then he comes through with this performance and although maybe he ends up having some of the least screen time of the main cast just because he is the first um first son to to pass i found his performance really affecting and and one of the keys in the first half of the film you're talking about establishing these brothers as like a real family unit a real support structure for each other i felt that harris dickinson's performance and david as a character was just so key and integral to that working and and that believability in the film because you see how much like in some ways he's kind of the best of them not just in terms of he was the best wrestler maybe but like the best of the brothers he seems this is so lame to say probably right but he just seems like the so like purest of heart like even though he's stealing the spotlight from kevin in certain scenes he does it in a way that and the way that he sort of doesn't necessarily confesses it, but owns what he does and apologizes and feels so genuine like it, there's a there's just a real I, I just got this really positive vibe from david as a character which makes his for his death being the first one in some ways maybe even like the most like heartbreaking in an initial way like obviously it gets worse and worse and worse as they go on and there's more deaths that happen but i think harris dickinson's like performance in that role is like a huge part of that and i think he he really stood out to me in that in that way yeah i was gonna say well there's also that scene which just ends up being like a real gut punch too which is when uh they that you know um is that the wedding he, he, he yeah he finds yeah. at the wedding he yeah. finds uh david throwing up blood in the bathroom and they have like a conversation yeah. and and kevin says something to him like well i guess you're not going to go to tokyo now and fight for the world championship and, and then they, they just start laughing yeah yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. because you know to them it's absolutely farcical even, even though that's exactly what should happen right like no chance he should be going to Japan to fight in this after, you know, he has some sort of intestinal condition. It's very clear, but to them, it's just an absolute farce that something like this would keep them from, you know, this huge milestone that they want, but more importantly that their father wants. Um, and so, yeah, I think he's really strong in that scene and in all, in all of his, uh, moments in the movie I, I agree with you i think of the other brothers he's the one that i would you know point to as being the standout although they're all you know really good i think in their their parts yeah i i agree it's really hard to choose i i sort of call that out more just because that performance specifically really did strike me i think in uh in the film but if i was going for maybe the biggest standout besides zach Efron, i do think holt mccallany i think this film really hinges on his in his yeah performance and his selling fritz as this as this really toxic and extremely cynical father who maybe as all like sort of very imperfect and maybe even bad men like they he fights very hard for his children in one dimension of their lives but is but falls so short in every other respect and there's a couple light touches at the end of the film that sort of show you the the depth of the sac like the sacrifices that he was forcing his kids to make, you know, when Kevin's gone through the ledgers of of the business and seen that he he and his family or his brothers more specifically were being paid less than what was actually being put in the books because his father was skimming off the top to keep things running 
or whatever it might be like you see the lengths he wanted to go to like live vicariously in this toxic way where he doesn't love or really appreciate his children the way that you would want a parent to and instead is sort of trying to live their own dreams and their own aspirations through them and i i think that this performance by holt mccallan like completely sells it i think he's you know one of the better supporting performances of the year in that respect and i think he sort of provides this platform for someone like zach efron for jeremy allen white as well who we haven't really talked about yet to come through and, and hit you pretty hard to show you how much damage this father was able to do over the course of his children's life and and how he's unable to let that go and and there's these multiple scenes both with mara tierney and with fritz uh with holt mccallany where they talk about how it's you know it's your it's yours you know kevin it's your job to make things you know to take care of your brother it's not my job it's not you know, it's not my job to go talk to your father about going easier on Mike. You know, there's these very interesting scenes and and that sort of discomfort with the emotional side of parenting, I think, is something that's so important for the core themes of the film to work. And Holt McCallany is able to totally embody that in the film and, and does a great job with it. Yeah, uh, I I agree with you. I think it's a very important performance in the movie. It's very important that he doesn't come off as, you know, some sort of cartoonish, you know, uh, tyrant figure. And he is a tyrant in his own way. He is kind of an irredeemable um, person. But um, I think there are layers to what he is doing. And, you know, the movie's just investigating you know, it, it is a family family drama, as we say. And there's again this whole idea of the von Erich name. Um, sure, you know, is that is that cursed and and whatnot? And um, he is obsessed with the von Erich name, right? Uh, Fritz is, and you know, making it this you know popular, uh, make, making it the biggest name in wrestling, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and he sees that as serving his family, right? He sees that. Uh, that as him prioritizing family, but really, you know, family is about these other moments that we see, you know, again, whether it's the the moment at the college party or just the, the bond that the brothers have inside and outside of wrestling. It's not about the achievements. It's not about any of the things that he has chosen to focus on. And he just doesn't understand that. Um, and um, I think his portrayal is very effective. I also want to mention Mara Tierney because I think um, it's a smaller role than some of the other people we've talked about, but I think she has some really powerful yeah. scenes in this movie. Um, and, you know, it's it's set up like in the beginning of the movie, Kevin has a voiceover where he's talking about the, the curse and he says, you know, my father wanted to fight it with wrestling. My mother wanted to fight it with religion and uh, with God. And so that is sort of her approach to this whole situation um and you really see i mean you feel the pain that she is going through the agony of you know not being able to express her feelings or in feeling like you know that her faith her religion everything is sort of letting her down right this what what she has made her whole life and philosophy in life about which is, you know, faith in God is, you know, it, it, she's finding it harder and harder to 
cling to that because these tragic things keep happening. And uh, there's one scene, which maybe is sort of the, the most powerful scene in the movie for me, where I believe it's after Mike has died and they're getting ready for the funeral. And you just see she has the this black dress on her bed and like her, yeah. first of all, just her looking at it. Um, and, you know, the torturous expression on her face of like, I have to put this, this dress on again because, you know, I've lost, again, I've lost another child. It's her third child at this point that she's lost. Um, and, you know, that part of it works really well. And then, you know, Lily James comes and has a conversation with her and she's like, oh, well, it's the same dress right I, I don't want people to see me in the same dress that i wore at the to the last funeral or whatever it's and it's just like it breaks your heart because um you know just the fact that she's thinking about these sort of things and the fact that you know she would have to be put in that situation right where she is wearing the same dress to all of her kids funerals is you know something that no one obviously should have to experience and i do appreciate the arc sort of that this character has and you know finally sort of in the end standing up for herself when you know it feels that she's been silenced by her husband and his domineering influence over the years um and you know she's painting at the end of the movie which is her uh, hobby that she had which she you know has really given up to be uh, to support the sons in the wrestling career and to be sort of a homemaker right because fritz comes in and he's like you know where's dinner and she's like i didn't make anything and that's just sort of a big step forward for her um that finally she has had some resolve to say no and it's taken a long time but um yeah i just think she she does a lot of the sort of silent agony that the family is experiencing really well and in, in most of the scenes that she's in i thought she made the most of her you know limited screen time in the movie I agree. Yeah. Of, of her, between her and Lily, Lily James, yeah. I think that she rises to the top a little bit of the, of the female performances. And I think that's partially because as the mom, I think she was given a lot more dimension and frankly was painted more as a more complex figure in the film because of this, again, being someone who was not maybe the ideal mother that we'd want or, or that a person would want in terms of, Yes, she's providing. She's putting. She's literally making the food and putting it on the table to feed these, this <laughs> basketball team of extreme yeah. of extremely large boys who must eat an absolute. I mean, the breakfast scene where she's just like loading the platter full of biscuits and there's like mm -hmm. serving bowls of eggs and you know serving pl platters of bacon. I was just like, oh my god, this is like every meal in this house. This is crazy. But mm -hmm. at the same time, she's not provi providing. Uh, like you know, like her, like her husband, she's not providing the emotional presence and support that you want from, like that a parent needs to provide their children. Um, and I, you know, maybe ideally one parent has that, and one parent doesn't. You know, if one parent doesn't isn't able to provide there, doesn't feel comfortable being that emotional connectivity to their children. Hopefully, the other is able to provide that to to create some sort of balance. But in this family, in the film, makes it clear, um, and Martyrian does a good job. That, that sort of coldness comes out in, in very serious moments, right? That she's not that for her kids either. And, she, you know, she's another important part. That performance is another important part of really providing the full context for 
Kevin and his brothers. Yeah. Uh, Scott, before, I do want to talk a little bit more about some of the scenes towards the ending of this yeah. film. Um, you know, obviously we have the, the deaths of the three brothers that mm -hmm. occur in pretty quick succession. David dies first of the intestinal condition that we mentioned. Uh, we have Mike who overdose, you know, uh, voluntarily overdoses on medication, commits yeah. suicide. Yeah. Uh, it, we, we should say tranquilizers that he is taking because he is forced into the ring and ends up going into this sort of shock coma uh, because Toxic of shock. Yeah, post when he was having yeah. a surgery. Yeah. And it's basically you know, functioning at 50%, it seems, and that's being generous, perhaps, when he actually emerges from this coma, although that doesn't discourage Fritz at all from, you know, throwing him right back into the, the mix. I mean, there's, a like, a press conference scene where he's just, you know, I mean, that's just, back into that's like real, it's just, just yeah, crazy stuff. Painful happening. to watch. Painful to watch. He can barely even form a sentence. Uh, so that happens. And then, finally, you know, in the last... 20 minutes or so of the movie, we have Carrie who, you know, uh, he's already been severely injured because um, he uh, goes on a motorcycle ride late at night after, yeah, yeah. yeah winning the title against uh, Ric Flair. And he crashes and ends up losing his right foot. Um, again, this does not deter Fritz from forcing him back into the ring and the physical you know, pressure that he puts himself under to, you know, be able to be this wrestling superstar and athlete in spite of his physical condition, in spite of his disability, which is, you know, you know, it, it pretty much just prevents him from being able to be that. He just, he, he still pushes on anyway, and it ends up breaking him emotionally. And he, he shoots himself right in the yard of the house. Um, yeah. Right, right after, you know, uh, Kevin has asked his father, hey, can you please go say something to him? And, of course, his father has not done that. Um, so all of the deaths happen. And then, of course, we have this sort of dream sequence in which the three, the four brothers, actually, because Jack Jr., the oldest brother who uh, died as a child, is also there, um, are reuniting in the afterlife um, and, you know, embracing. And it's it's you know, meant to be a sort of, again, cathartic sequence of the brothers being together, which is sort of where they always belonged, right, together. Um, and so then there's that scene, and then the final scene of the movie um, takes place with um, Kevin and his children, and Kevin has, you know, maybe like the saddest line in the movie, which is, you know, uh, that he, I don't remember exactly what the, how the line goes. You can probably help me out, Scott. But, um, you know, he, he's like, I loved my brothers or whatever. And I, I just realized I'm not a brother to anybody anymore. Um, yeah. And I'm sad you know, because I son. used to be a brother and now I'm not a brother anymore. Yeah. Um, and then his sons, you know, try to comfort him and say, we'll be your brothers, dad. Yeah. And he cries for the first time in the movie, shows emotion. Um, you know, immediately feels embarrassed about it, but is encouraged by his sons. You know, hey, it's okay. It's it's okay to cry. There's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and the movie kind of ends with this serene image of them by the the playing water football there. in the yard. Yeah. yeah. Um, Scott, 
thoughts on, you know, sort of the second half of the movie, how this all plays out. And in particular, these couple of scenes towards the end, I know the dream sequence has not necessarily worked for everyone um, because it is sort of, you know, very It's a little jarring. It's yeah, a little jarring. It it, yeah. it's, it's this sort of, I believe it was Adam Naiman, I believe in his review, said something um, about it was a very Malikian, Terrence Malick's esque sequence, which I think was a good comparison, right? The sort of pastoral, um, almost, you know, it's serene, almost, yeah. reli- almost religious because Terrence Malick, you know, is, is Christian and has that imagery and, and mm-hmm. underscoring a lot of his uh, movies. And it, it almost is this sort of Christian notion of the afterlife of like, oh, you know, you're reunited with all of your loved ones in this sort of yeah paradise like place right uh, what did you make of that in a movie that otherwise really verge into the surreal in that way yeah i thought it was a really interesting choice <laughs> i i think it, i honestly think that it did work in the moment for me it was this scene where because because i think what where they really took carrie's death and they really use that as a as a tool to show you and to really try to put you in, in his shoes and be like, what must he be like, especially when you think about the fact there's also this other, you know, kid in Chris who I don't I think Chris killed himself after Mike killed himself, like between Carrie and Mike, I believe is when Chris died. So it, especially if you factor in that element to it as well, which I know the film is not doing, but I feel like they're using Carrie to sort of show you when you have this much horrible stuff happen to your family, not just your family, but your brothers, right? Like how must that weigh on you? And it's very traditional, of course, to show these interior scenes where it's clear that Carrie is out of control. Like you see that at the dinner, the Christmas, you know, before Christmas dinner or whatever, um, when he's at the house and he's sort of spinning out over these small things with his dad. And then he calls Kevin either later in the night or a couple days later, whatever it is, it's unclear the timeline of these things, but maybe the, the next morning, essentially. And he's talking about how the curse is inside him. Like he just can't overcome these things. And, Although I do think this the sort of afterlife dream sequence is out of place in the film, I think the scene itself to sort of takes that notion of we need to like we're gonna use Carrie's death to show you the agony, like the real mental anguish and agony mm-hmm. that this much tragedy will do to someone. And I actually find that dream sequence to be sort of the effective conclusion of that because it's showing you like this is what he was like this is all he was thinking about is like what i am in so much pain from my leg being amputated from continuing to wrestle from the tragic like the emotional tragedies that have taken place i can't find emotional solace in my family like my parents won't support me kevin is not estranged but like they're in different they're on different trajectories right like kevin has a family he's still wrestling um and doesn't live in texas anymore i don't believe and all he like all he's thinking about is being with his family again. That those the, you know those lines that Kevin's saying to Pam at the beginning of the movie is all he's thinking about is when will my pain end? When will I be with my family again? 
So though I, I'm curious if the scene really fits in the film. I don't know if I have an answer for that question, or maybe I'm leaning the answer to that question is no. But for like what the film I think was trying to achieve specifically in that moment, I think the scene works and it shows it is this sort of cathartic release of like, wow, like this, this is what it was about for him, right? And that's horrible. Like it's part of that is horrible, right? Like some of that is horrible, but there's a real release in in that in death for him, right? And there's a real release that he couldn't overcome on his own. And again, I, I hesitate to say that it fits in the in the, the film because as you pointed out, and it sounds like a lot of criticism has been leveled, like there aren't really any other surrealist elements of this movie. But this certainly took a turn. It feels out of place, but I thematically I almost feel like it kind of works. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, again, that comment that Sean Durkin makes about I didn't want to put Chris's story in there because I just didn't think audiences could take it. Is is the purpose of the scene more than anything just to sort of give audiences right a moment of something that they can can cling to and maybe for for them to not just leave the theater thinking that this was just pure misery porn, right? Uh because I think there is the the possibility for that, uh, just given yeah how much happens to this family. I think uh, if that was the ultimate intention of the film, which it very well may be, I'm not saying it's not, I think that would be like a little disappointing to me. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with yeah. you. Yeah, if it was just as simple as that. Um, yeah, because also, like, I'll be honest, like, I, th- this film, just for as an example, has an A minus cinema score. Are people giving this thing an A minus because they got a dream sequence where Carrie was happy in the afterlife? Like that would be a little disconcerting to me. I mean, if, I think again, like, kind of going maybe in switching gears to the other scene that you were talking about there at the end, where yeah. Kevin is with his family. Like, I feel like that sort of drives the ultimate sort of overriding emotion that I feel when I leave the film. It's like that scene, not the yeah. one earlier with Carrie that drives that because, and we were talking about this before we started recording. I thought that scene really worked. I, I There's like the precocious children and what you were saying there, like, Oh, we'll be your brothers. And, and that sort of eye roll for me. Like, I don't, I did not enjoy that aspect of the, of it too much. But even in spite of that, like, I think this whole notion that here's this guy who was told for decades of his life that he could not show emotion his first, like David dies, you can't show emotion. Mike dies, you can't show emotion. Carrie dies, you can't so you can't show emotion. And to the point where he like goes into this shell, right, where he won't even get out of bed and help raise, help his wife raise his child, you know, their child. And he's sitting in his yard, finally, and is able to cry, and cry in front of his kids. And it's that moment, like without any words, right? Like without any lines of dialogue, the scene itself just sort of captures this sort of release and this recognition that maybe he'll make some of the same mistakes his father made with raising his children, but he's not going to make all of them because he's there sitting in the yard crying in front of them. And, and and his sons already understand, right? His sons are already like, they're accepting that, right? Everyone cries. Yeah. Like, and the yeah. fact that, I mean, I would I would go as far as to say the fact that they're saying that, you know, very strongly suggests that they will not turn out like 
you know. Yeah, emotionally repressed under his men. father's. You know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and I think that is what feeds the positive outlook coming out of the movie, right? Like, yeah. there is a way to break a toxic and negative cycle like that, even through all this trauma, even through all this tragedy. There are ways to overcome and stop the cycle of, you know, toxicity and, um, you know, in like lack of vulnerability. And is that a little cheap in the film? Maybe. But I did find it ultimately very effective. And certainly in terms of like more of a piece with the rest of the film than say like the dream sequence was in terms of where it fit um in terms of how the film was made but i'm not too like bent out of shape about things being you know in sync or out of sync in this movie because ultimately i think they do serve the themes of the film and they work for me in those respects that i described yeah i i agree with you you know again it is one of those scenes where like especially when you factor in the things that the kids are saying i'm like i know that i should be like rolling my eyes cringing whatever Maybe I even am a little bit, but like, I cannot deny the effect that this is having on me. Um, and I yeah. think that just goes to show, you know, if you put the, put in the work, right, you put in the care, you do all of that. Um, and you really, you know, put it, put in the care to make a, a good, effective movie, not just some assembly line biopic, then you can earn a scene like that at the end, right? which maybe it, it takes you out of it a little bit. Maybe it's not, you know, realistic in terms of the dialogue and what the, what the kids are saying, but emotionally you don't have to feel guilty maybe about feeling like what the, the movie wants you to feel right. The movie does, I think, earn that moment in the end there. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. All right, Scott, let's wrap up for the Iron Claw. Uh, we've talked about a lot of great scenes in the movie. Uh, do you want to pick one of those as your favorite scene or, or one we haven't talked about? Yeah, th there's I mean, there are a bunch of really great scenes in this film. There's no doubt about that. I think one of the ones that stands out for me is, is sort of the the one. I guess I just kind of have to go back to it. The physicality is such a big part of this film. And so for me, it is that Harley race fight. That is sort of the scene for me that does it. And if you rope in the locker room afterwards to it, you get both. You almost get the physicality of the performance and the emotionality of of the performance as well, sort of all in, in one package. So I would definitely I would sort of point back towards that scene, which I know we mentioned and talked about earlier as the one that works for me. And you get both Harris Dickinson and Zach Efron because you get Harris Dickinson on the mic. And I do think that he's able to bring that charm and sort of more silver tongued nature of David that, that Kevin is missing the sort of terseness um, and plainness of Kevin doesn't capture as a character. And uh, David has that. And I think the fact that you get the physicality of Efron, the smoothness of Harris Dickinson, and then in the locker room afterwards, sort of this emotional uh, seesaw, that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good scene. And uh, I've heard from wrestling fans that the portrayal of Harley Harley Race is very on point. Uh, but the portrayal of Ric Flair is not. Uh, which, honestly, 
even not being a wrestling fan, just vaguely knowing of Ric Flair because of his public persona, I kind of agree with that, right? I think the actor that they got to play Ric Flair was like, just seemed uh, very, he, he was forcing it, uh, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, it didn't seem like what I think of when I think of Ric Flair in that way. But anyway, Well, just, I can, I can let there. everyone know that I don't think about Ric Flair at all. So <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, I only just sort of know of him because you know he sort of trans sure. has transcended wrestling at this point. But oh, sure, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I've mentioned some of the most of the scenes that I like. I really like the the dress scene with uh, Maura Tierney's character, the college party. Um, these are some of my favorite scenes. Also, I really like the another scene involving Maura Tierney where they're at eating the meal, and um, you know we learn that this is before they go to the party and, and Mike is talking about wanting to, um, you know, go uh, and play the concert and his parents are not going to allow him to do that. And there's a conversation that happens between um, between Fritz and his wife about, you know, oh, well, Fritz actually had some some interest in music right when he was um, younger. And um, the, the mom, Mara Tierney, kind of talks about, you know, the person that she fell in love with and how he was so much different from everyone else and had, you know, a lot of different interests and stuff like that. And, you know, there's a real sort of regret in the way that it's said, uh, because obviously that's not really the way that he turned out or the, that's not the fruits that we, we know now. Um, and so I think that's another just really poignant moment, um, in, you know, the whole story of the movie and in, in that, in that performance by Mara Tierney too um scott your score for the film out of 10 8.5 yeah it's a 9.3 for me this movie will be in my top 10 of the year i really really enjoyed it i would encourage anyone to check it out regardless of your interest in wrestling in the subject matter um because i think you'll find something really compelling here and uh, i think it's sean durkin's best effort yet all right, Scott, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we have some awards noms to talk about, uh, including the Indie Spirit Awards and the Golden Globes, which are coming up just next weekend. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. back to this episode of some like it scott scott uh, as mentioned before the break a couple of uh, pretty big names in award season have announced their nominations and so it's worth spending just a couple of minutes talking about uh, what we're seeing uh, with those nominations and what they may mean with the oscar still coming up and the nominations still to be announced the first is the indie spirit awards which not necessarily the best predictor for obvious reasons this does focus on independent films only um but it's in my opinion, the best award show in terms of the quality of films that get nominated and awarded generally. Uh, and so it's one that I always like to pay attention to. Um, and they've come up with another strong list of nominations this year, just to sort of quickly go through the highlights, Scott, uh, the nominees for best picture are, you know, a lot of films that we've talked about already, all of us strangers, the Andrew Haig film, American fiction, uh may december of course uh one of my favorites of the year 
Passages, the Irish Sax movie, Past Lives, of course, maybe the most critically acclaimed film of the year from Celine Song, and a film called We Grown Now, which uh, I've not really heard of, um, but uh, it is it is an American film. Um, it is directed by uh, individuals by the name of Joe Pirro and Minhal Baig, which I've not heard of either of them, but um, I think film it's Minhal Baig, debuted the director. Okay. Yep, sorry, Joe, Joe Pierre is just the producer. But anyway, um, her film is nominated here. It looks like it debuted at TIFF, but um, not a whole lot on when we can see that film, although it has been picked up by Sony Pictures Classics. Regardless, Scott, you know, some, some big films there that are nominated. Um, looking further into the performances, the Indie Spirit Awards also do the, you know, 10 nominees, regardless of gender. Um, we're just we're, we're roping them all together in uh, the best lead and best supporting performance categories. Um, you know, some of these in the lead performance category are perhaps not surprising. Greta Lee in Past Lives, Natalie Portman for May, December, Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction um, and Franz Rogowski in Passages, names that we've already talked about, you know, a lot in critics circles and things like that. But also some deeper cuts like Jessica Chastain in Memory, which is uh, this film uh, starring her and um, Peter Sarsgaard, uh, which is going to be coming out very soon, directed by Michelle Franco. Um, we also have Tiana Taylor in 1001, which we mentioned uh, as being nominated. I don't recall which awards it was, perhaps the Gotham Awards, but um, she had received a nomination elsewhere. Um, and also Teo Yu, the uh, male lead from Past Lives, getting some love here. You know, I think a lot of talk on, around that movie has been about Greta Lee's performance, but um, he also is collecting the nomination here um, in addition to Greta Lee. Um, in the supporting performance category, um, a very varied list of nominations. Of course, you have some of the favorites from award season, like Charles Melton in May, December, like Divine Joy Randolph in the holdovers and one that I'm starting to hear a lot about, which is Sterling K. Brown in American fiction seems to be getting a lot of praise for his performance there. Um, but then again, you have some deeper cuts, which I am kind of thrilled but surprised to see that um, Noah Galvin was nominated for theater camp, uh, his performance as Glenn, the um, sort of uh, maintenance man who ends up, you know, taking the starring role in Jen still in the end. Um, we also have both Anne Hathaway and Marin Ireland for Eileen, um, the William Oldroyd film that was recently released. Um, Glenn Howerton and Blackberry is one that we've talked about before. Um, Scott, maybe, maybe not one of our favorites, but it is one that seems to be coming up um, quite a bit more, but good list of nominees there. Um, also, uh, a couple of points I, I wanted to uh, point out on the breakthrough performance category. Um, love seeing Marshawn Lynch get a nomination for his performance as Mr. G in Bottoms. Also, uh, in that same category, Dominic Sessa in The Holdovers. thought he was great in the movie. Um, I think it's kind of a little disappointing that um, Paul Giamatti and Divine Joy Randolph seem to be getting, you know, all of the love because I think his performance is on the same level as theirs. And, 
you know, even at, at the time, I, when I came out of the movie, I was thinking I might even rank Paul Giamatti third out of three out of the lead performances here. Not that he was bad in the movie, but uh, I, I like seeing Dominic Sessa get some love because it was a very impressive, you know, sort of breakthrough performance from him. Um, but yeah, those are sort of the big awards there. Um, the I did want to point out as well that I was just very happy to see that um, the Robert Altman Award, this is given to an ensemble cast director and casting director, just sort of, a, you know, recognition of all those different individuals um, involved with the making of the film. Um, last year, for example, the movie went to Women Talking. Before that, it went to Mass, One Night in Miami. This is kind of a movie for ensemble or an award for ensemble films. This year, it's going to one of the you know most significant figures i think in indie cinema in the last 10 15 20 years kelly reichert um and her film showing up which um is one of my favorite movies of the year you know i think kelly reichert is someone certainly worthy of celebrating at an independent film awards and i do think the movie has a terrific ensemble cast i think everybody in this movie really um you know contributes from Michelle Williams, Hong Chow, Andre 3000, John Magaro, um, Judd Hirsch. Uh, it's it's a really great cast. So I love seeing um, that showing up is going to be honored with the Robert Altman Award. Scott, any takeaways from the Indie Spirit Award nominations? Anything you want to add there? Hard to have many takeaways. I think really just as you mentioned at the beginning, it's it's obviously great to see the recognition of some of these performances that you absolutely should not expect to see recognition beyond this specific venue and this specific show. But at the same time, I think it's very interesting and, and I'm curious how this translates into the awards race, specific nominations like your Jeffrey Wrights, like your core Jefferson for best screenplay. I think these are people and, you know, Sterling K. Brown for American Fiction, Eric Alexander as well, like that cast is getting a lot of heat, I think, in the quote unquote mainstream awards as well in like your Oscars and your SAG awards, etc. And I'm curious if also getting traction at the Independent Spirit Awards will be enough to continue the momentum of American Fiction just in general, because that seems like a, that is a film that continues to pick up more and more recognition as the season goes on and gets more and more heat and interesting on a similar note, not seeing Paul Giamatti get a nomination here. Uh, when obviously the film, the holdovers was definitely in consideration for, for the different categories with divine joy, Randolph and Dominic Sessa and David Harrington or sorry, David Hemmingson getting nominations in their respective acting and then writing categories. So it's very, curious because I think people are really pinning a lot on Giamatti and think that he might be sort of a dark horse to usurp Killian Murphy or whoever else might be in contention there, but did not get any love here at film at the independent spirit awards, which is interesting. I think, mean, I mean, I think that's interesting. I don't think that's actually going to completely shut that down, but I think it's interesting implication for the rest of the race. And we'll see if, this is merely a speed bump or if it's a bit larger of a barrier for him. Yeah. Um, I, one other thing I wanted to mention is just that um, 
how to blow up a pipeline was only nominated for best editing uh from what i saw which is kind of disappointing I, that was a film that i thought would have performed better at the indie spirit awards it does seem like a movie sort of fit for the those awards um anyway I, I was just a little surprised that it only received the one nomination moving on scott the golden globes um which have revealed their nominations of course uh, this is uh the much much uh controversial awards that they took a year off they were on twitter they were on youtube you know and now they're finally back uh, they're going to be on cbs this year and uh they're you know sort of vying to make a big comeback if you will although it seems from the nominations that they're still sort of up to their old tricks as far as the lack of diversity in the nominees um but starting at the top scott best motion picture of course they split this into drama and then musical or comedy Best Motion Picture Drama, Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Past Lives, The Zone of Interest, and Anatomy of a Fall. So all huge hitters there, um, all films that you expect to be coming up um, during and throughout Oscar season. Um, still waiting to see The Zone of Interest. Still, still looking forward to being able to see that film at some point in the distant future, hopefully. Um, Anyway, best uh, motion picture, musical, or comedy, Barbie, Poor Things, American Fiction, The Holdovers, May, December, and Air. Um, again, I, I feel like this is pretty chalky nominees, right? Again, these are a lot of the films that we're hearing about um, being in contention for best picture. Um, you know, one sort of surprising omission in the musical or comedy category is, of course, uh, The Color Purple. Um, Presumably uh, Air taking its spot as well, which yeah. is like... Huh, diversity, yeah. We're back. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Just yeah. really bad optics on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is the big musical, if you will, this year. And besides you know, Wonka. Without it there. Yeah, sure. With without it there, um, yeah, yeah. Um there's no musical that's that's really not I mean, you know, Barbie has its musical elements, um, but sure. it's certainly not a musical by any stretch of the imagination. Um the yeah. holdovers, calling it a comedy is perhaps a little bit uh, of a stretch, in my opinion. A lot of people were saying, you know, May, December being a comedy was the ridiculous one. But I, I don't I, I obviously don't agree with that. Is a, I mean, is air a comedy? Scott, remind me. Was sure. Air yeah, a comedy? No, uh, that's that, that's a good shout as well. Um, <laughs> At least poor thing. I don't know. Comfortably straddles that line of there. Yeah. It's there's a lot of comedy in that film. I laughed. A lot. I mean, it's not really an interesting conversation to have because the Golden Globes always just do wild stuff with this. But, you know, again, they're like, up to like their having six nominations yeah. and yeah. still not managing to find the color purple in the musical or comedy mm -hmm. category. Mm -hmm. They want. But the truth I, is, they... Scott, they wanted Matt Damon and Viola Davis like they want, <laughs> and Ben Affleck. They want them. All, they, yeah. they want those people at the ceremony. That is true. I mean, yes. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point because, you know, they are very much about like the the glitz and glamour and, you know, hey, we've got all the biggest celebrities here and, um, you know, we're getting them drunk. That's like the Golden Globes. You know, yeah. Name, if you will. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, it, it will be interesting to see what comes out of here as the winners, because I think that will give us some guidance for Oscar season, because, you know, this is a lot of the movies that we expect to be nominated for best picture competing against each other. Is it, is it so, in so some regard. It, what is the, of those two categories, right? Like, I don't think, well, I think you just never learn anything from what wins best musical or comedy, right? Like the holdovers is, yeah, that win. may be true. Yeah. The holdovers is probably going to win that movie, but is it really going to tell you anything? 
Yeah, the it's probably more win. informative if the holdovers doesn't win. Then that probably tell, that might tell you something. Now, I would say if Barbie is able to win, Barbie's then good. that might be a little bit more. I mean, I don't think it's out of the question, but I, I think if Barbie was able to win, then that might, you know, be a little. Bit I think American Fiction has more of a chance of winning than Barbie. I'd be I'd be less surprised. I, I agree with you. Won. I agree with you, but I don't think Barbie is is an absolute zero percent chance. Um, I mean, it is the most popular movie of the year. So um, well, they have a whole well, good news, Scott. They have a whole category for that. They can go recognize Barbie <laughs> and cinematic and box office achievement if they want yeah. to. Uh, but, but you're, you're probably like right. Oppenheimer it, 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 is like Oppenheimer versus Killers. Is that like what? Is that what the? Is that informative? I just don't. Is Killer? Like I don't think Killers is like that. I honestly don't feel like Killers is that big of a deal in the awards season. If I'm yeah. being honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I think right now that. Oppenheimer, The Holdovers, American Fiction, even Poor Things are sort of the movies that are nearer to the top, perhaps even than Killers of the Flower Moon. Killers uh, is like obviously a huge critical darling. Yeah. No doubt about that. But I don't Scorsese, yeah. I'd be curious if it if it has a lot of heat with the Academy. You know, not that it's not well regarded. I'm sure it is. Don't get me wrong about that. But I feel like the Academy's love is seems to be pushed like seems to be pointing elsewhere i mean we're gonna learn a lot more with nominations from the guilds in the next you know weeks and months but i feel like the conversation around killers is it feels kind of dead is that crazy to say yeah no i i I don't disagree with you i just think um even though the movie didn't perform terribly commercially i just think a lot It it did no it did perform terribly commercially it did definitely did Okay, uh, but anyway, I think a lot of people still just haven't seen it, and um, that you know, it's all everyone is just oh, it's so long, it's such a long film, you know, it's sure. three and a half hours, it's so long, I don't want to watch this long movie, um, which is very annoying, but I do think it's contributing to maybe why we aren't hearing as much about um, yeah that movie, but yeah, I mean, I think it's Oppenheimer's to lose at this point. Um, Best director, much, much to Bradley uh, Cooper's dismay. Yeah, best director, Bradley Cooper, Greta Gerwig, mm. Yorgos Lanthimos, Christopher Nolan, Martin Scorsese, and Celine Song. Um, so you know, again, we're talking about sort of American fiction and the holdovers being big candidates, but um, you know, Cord Jefferson not getting nominated, Alexander Payne not getting nominated. To be fair, those movies maybe aren't the the movies where you think of the director as being, you know, at the forefront of that those movies' success in the same way that you think of Oppenheimer or Killers of the Flower Moon, right? As like director movies, yeah. Uh, if that makes sense, but um, even Poor Things, like a Yorgos Lanthimos yeah. movie, Bradley Cooper might like. To your point, like really past lives, like Celine Song is like the one exception. It's like is like is like the the stand-in for those other types of like Alexander Payne. Celine Song and you know Cord Jefferson. I think Alexander Payne's obviously the most experienced director there and the most prestigious in terms of what they've done already. Yeah. But they sort of like it's like a like that those three people would like swap in for each other versus like these other maybe more mainstream auteurs. Even Greta Gerwig, right? Like Barbie's a, Ger- a Greta Gerwig movie. It feels like yeah. So then yeah. Yeah, uh, acting-wise, we have, you know, again, I, th- I feel like the musical or comedy just doesn't really tell you 
a whole lot because you have, you know, random stuff like uh, <laughs> Alma Poitsy getting nominated for Fallen Leaves or Nicolas Cage getting nominated for Dream Scenario. Things that are just... You got Jennifer Lawrence in there, baby. They want to get her drunk again. Yeah. What if they give her the or award? No How sick is that if they give her, if, if she wins? I mean, it's not. But these happen, are, there's no way. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. They, these sorts of things are just, you know, like that we have to fill these spots with somebody sort of. Um, sure. Nominees. And as you said, they probably would love to have Nicolas Cage and Jennifer Lawrence attend to their ceremony. So. Um, and Joaquin, for that matter. The thought process. Yeah. And Timothy Chalamet getting nominated for Wonka, you know. Again, all the stars are out for the Golden Globes. Timothy Chalamet uh, and Wonka as Willy Wonka. (laughs) He showed us how Willy became Wonka. He sure did. Um, Actor in a motion picture, drama, Bradley Cooper and Maestro, Killian Murphy and Oppenheimer. I mean, you can kind of stop right there, right? I feel like that's the the battle right now in terms of this category but it seems that way we also have leonardo dicaprio in killers of the flower moon coleman domingo and rustin andrew scott in all of us strangers and for all the the chaotic people out there barry keegan in saltburn yeah Um, i feel like the i mean the oscars race right is (laughs) killian murphy um bradley cooper paul giamatti jeffrey wright and then there. Like that's like, and then there's a fifth spot in there for someone, and then somebody who will get to attend the Oscars this year. And exactly, will be very happy to do so. That's what I it mean. Feels probably like right Leonardo now. DiCaprio, right? But yeah, you think so? Maybe, yeah. I think it totally depends yeah. on the trajectory of the conversation over the yeah. next yeah. over the next few months. That that's the thing because I, I just, it's in the lull period, right? Like now is not the time when you need to be talking about the killer, so that can change very quickly in the yeah. next few weeks, and I could really be, you know eating my words about what I just said about killers a few minutes ago. But right now I, I have a hard time seeing Leo in the, in as the fifth in that category, just because I don't think there's anyone talking about killers of the flower moon that said, like, like we know that, you know, there's going to be some support for killers of the flower moon in, you know, best actress for, um, Lily Gladstone. Lily Gladstone. There we go. Yeah. Yes, I was going to say, if you're if they're talking about performance for that movie, it's hers. It's not DiCaprio. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And she is nominated here in Best Actress in a, a Motion Picture Drama. Uh, Lily Gladstone also nominated Carrie Mulligan for Maestro, Sandra Huller for uh, Anatomy of a Fall, Annette Bening for Nyad, Greta Lee for Past Lives, and Kaylee Spaney for Priscilla. Um, you know, I'm not really sure, Scott, where the uh, the battle lies here. Well, I think the battle probably lies between Emma Stone, right, for Poor Things, who is nominated in the musical or comedy, and Lily Gladstone probably are the two people that I think, from what I've seen, are, are sort of at the top here. And then, you know, you have three other spots which are going to be filled. I think Sandra Huller will probably get one of those spots for Anatomy of a Fall. Um, I think Greta Lee has a pretty good chance to also be nominated. And then, you know, the last spot will probably go to one of these other people we've mentioned, whether it's Carrie Mulligan, whether it's Annette Benning, whether it's maybe Margot Robbie or I, say, I think it's probably it's, Margot Robbie, right? You think so? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, it, yeah, I think again, she has no chance. Throwing of Barbie a bone. She has no yeah, chance. No chance, of winning, no chance. I, I I think it probably goes to her. Right now at least. We'll see if it changes. But 
but there you go. That's actress supporting performances. Scott uh, Willem Dafoe, best supporting actor Willem Dafoe and Poor Things. Robert De Niro in Killers of the Flower Moon. Robert Downey Jr. in Oppenheimer. Ryan Gosling in Barbie. Charles Melton in May December. Mark Ruffalo in Poor, Poor Things. Six nominees here. Of course, yeah. should have mentioned that, but. Um, yeah, I don't really know as far as this category is concerned. I mean, I think a lot of these people will be showing up. I think Robert Downey Jr. It's um, Downey versus Gauz versus Melton, right? Maybe the favorite. Yeah, I think. And, but I mean, Mark Ruffalo, I think I'm hearing a lot of, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of things about his performance as well as maybe gaining some traction. But if he wins, if he wins an award for his real important things, that's, I mean, let him cook. Who let this man cook? I mean that whole film, honestly. Who who let who let Yorgos cook in that movie? Crazy well, stuff. I, I just I just appreciate Mark Ruffalo getting to cook because we know he's. One you should check it out. Uh, yeah, I I still want to try and get to it. Um, best supporting actress: uh, Emily Blunt in Oppenheimer, Danielle Brooks in The Color Purple, Jodie Foster in Niad, Julianne Moore in May December, Rosamund Pike in Saltburn, and Divine Joy Randolph in The Holdovers who I think is, is the favorite right now. I think um, Emily Blunt is certainly in the conversation. I think Julianne Moore is probably in the conversation as well. Um, but it does seem like divine joy Randolph is kind of been the darling of this category thus far. Scott. And also seems like at least this list of people, right. Is like the most uninspiring of the categories to talk about, like supporting actress. I don't even think it's necessarily been a weak year for supporting actresses. But for whatever reason, I just feel like the people in the conversations for like the nominations, like they're not lighting my fire this year. Like this is not like a category where I'm like, whoa, we got some real juice in this bad boy. You know, like Divine Joy Randolph seems to be the standout favorite. And I mean, I haven't seen Saltburn. I haven't seen The Color Purple. But the rest is like, I really like Jodie Foster in Nyad. Like I liked Emily Blunt and Oppenheimer. I like Julianne Moore in May, December, but I'm not like this is this is like a knockdown drag out fight. It's not like that. Um, and it feels like the other categories are more interesting conversations around the awards element. Yeah, I think that's probably true. But yeah, on the whole, Scott, I think, you know, this will it will be interesting to see maybe where some of the races are coming out after the Golden Globes next week, because I think what we've gotten from this conversation is maybe we don't have the best grip on who i mean maybe we have the grip on who are the two or three favorites but not necessarily enjoy it now while there's a conversation away. before it's all yes, determined there the is a conversation the there is a conversation <laughs> yeah um but uh yeah we will be getting the golden globes in just a few short days and god only knows what that ceremony is going to hold um i guess i'll be tuning in but mainly just to see who who takes home these awards because uh it will be instructive going forward maybe Timothy maybe, Chalamet. maybe not. Timothy Chalamet wins. Be pretty yeah. funny. Let him cook. I, I I would love it. I would personally love it. All right, Scott. I think that should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It. Scott, where can our listeners find you on social media? At uh, Shelton2013. And I'm at Scarvey Dent on all platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Even if you can't support us over there, however, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you'll be back for 
uh, our next episode of the podcast, on which we will not be ignoring the color purple like the Golden Globes did. We will actually be reviewing this Broadway musical adaptation of the best-selling novel by Alice Walker. Until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.